All right, and good afternoon. We are live on Daring Live on Thursday afternoon, and we're thrilled for everyone to be here and joining us. A very quick note for those of you who are joining us on YouTube, like we used to do in the past, the chat has been disabled. We would encourage everyone to come join us at daringbanjos.com slash live, which is where we started last week. There was a chat room there. Come join in the fun, the festivities. Uh, and while I introduce uh, our guest for the week, the wonderful Kristen Scott Benson. Kristen, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing? Well, indeed. Very well, indeed. Uh, Kristen, for those of you who don't know, although you should, you have no excuse, uh, is a five-time IBMA Bluegrass Banjo Player of the Year recipient. And in 2018, was the Steve Martin Banjo Prize winner and also is the banjo player for the Grammy-nominated Graspers, who, if you haven't heard them, please go check them out right now. Kristen is also the face of our Teachers Love Good Times campaign. Um, as a member of the Graspers, she has made numerous TV appearances and over 200 appearances at the Grand Ole Opry and has even played for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, which I'm desperate to ask you that question in a little while as well. Uh, thank you for joining us, Kristen. Would you mind playing us in? Yeah, sure. Let's do something uh, that everybody knows, something that if you love the banjo, you got to love this. <laughs> That's terrific. Good to have you here, Kristen. Thanks for having me, Dave. So, so just kind of kick it off, uh, kind of get some of your background for everybody. You know, I've heard in other interviews that you're kind of inspired when you're a kid by watching Scott Vestal um, play at one time. What kind of was what kind of was it in his playing? Um, he was playing with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, I think, right? Exactly right. And um, when they walked out on stage, I would have been about nine at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I remember when they walked out, they were young. And that caught my attention because I had grown up going to bluegrass festivals with my family. So and I could also tell um, just a little bit of history. Doyle Lawson's band was just at the, the very top during that time in bluegrass. And I mm -hmm. uh, had an entire band change. So all day long, people had been talking about, oh, we're going to see the new band tonight. So there was a lot of excitement about it. And then, mm -hmm. um, you know, when they walked out on stage, I think visually I just noticed that they were all really young and they started playing and it just absolutely killed me. I mean, I had never heard bluegrass pre presented with so much um, authority uh -huh. and, and cohesion and tightness and uh, the thing that I loved about it the most, because, see, I don't really remember uh, the original band. They were coming off of Terry Balcom as banjo player, who we all know is amazing. And Scott was uh, was very, uh, you know, into Terry Balcom's playing and was trying to emulate that with Doyle. But I hadn't seen that. So this was brand new to me. 
and uh, the power that he played with it, and it, it created this momentum, and that's why I love I love the whole presentation. But what the banjo did was it you know it subdivided all the notes, and it it just created this momentum, and it and it had this drive about it that. It was like, it just was irresistible to me. So I started wanting to play the banjo right then. Right. How much, how many more years was it till you started playing? Well, it's a, that's a little bit of a long answer. I got a banjo uh, when I was nine, but it was one of those short ones that the neck was cut off uh, right here in C. Uh And uh, I only had it about a month and then our house burned down. Oh, wow. So that wasn't a high priority uh, to replace that. So it wasn't until I was um, 13, I got a banjo for Christmas and I just got obsessed and have stayed that way. And were your parents, uh, did they play or were they just fans? Uh, Yeah. So my maternal grandfather was a professional um, mandolin player. Uh, If anyone is in this, you know, Southeastern region, especially the Carolinas, uh, WBC was a huge radio station. It was even more of a of a force back in the 40s and 50s when, you know, you had, we used to have three channels on TV, right? So uh, radio stations were real powerhouses, and WBT was one of those. And my grandfather had a, a daily radio show on WBT, much like Flatten Scruggs would have had it on WSM. So he made his living for many years playing mandolin and mm-hmm. uh, so that was my mom's dad. She didn't play, but I had it from that side of the family. And then my dad just played for fun. So mm-hmm. it's always around. You know, I don't have any memory of, and I started on mandolin because we had one and it was small. And right, was right. So I started playing mandolin when I was really young, and it's just been that constant force. But they were super supportive, and, you know, I can't say enough about, um, you know, how devoted they were to help me learn to play. That's great. And mandolin, mandolin's present in your life still. Your your, your husband is a mandolin player, right? Yes, I, I tell. Uh, I don't even own a mandolin. <laughs> when Wayne and I started dating, I didn't own a mandolin, and uh, I didn't ever feel the need to try to get one because there are many lying around these days. <laughs> Fantastic musician and a great mandolin player. In fact, when I started dating him. Uh, my grandfather, who was from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is basically where Wayne is from, he said, well, he's a mandolin player from Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a North Carolina boy. You know, he just, he can't be all bad. (laughs) All the mandolin players from North Carolina like I have, (laughs) because let me me try, there are a few that you wouldn't want to call a grandson. (laughs) So we agreed on that. And, and then in high school, you played in bands, I'm assuming? I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I played, uh, even school-wise, I played trombone and uh, and did the marching band and all that fun stuff. But my my interest just got so tugged toward banjo uh, that I, you know, I joined a gospel band when I was 15 years old. And that was a great experience, you know. It was a band that... Um, played maybe two or three churches a weekend, and they were local. So uh-huh. I had to play a lot, and uh, it just so happened that the guy who sang lead in that band had a really low voice, and everything he sang was in uh, E and D and F. So that was great for you know. I never got to do this in that band, so it was really right. a 
performing. You didn't retune down or anything. You played in G tuning. I, I would, you know, use a capo sometimes, but okay. I just stayed tuning. But, uh, you know, it was great only a couple of years into playing to get forced to play a lot in those different keys and yeah, yeah. slow in that band and right. help, help develop slow skills. I also had a magnificent teacher, a guy, uh, again, in this area, he's very well known and his name is Al Osteen. And um, he's absolutely a professional level um player and did play uh professionally for jim and jesse and could have lived in that world and just decided not to mm-hmm. so i was um just unbelievably fortunate to find that teacher because this is uh let's see it when i was uh 13 so i would have been 1989 i started uh-huh. no youtube no internet right. you know now we're like, oh, it was so hard back in the 80s. But you know what I'm saying? We didn't have access to the only access we had to learning. There were a few books, but I didn't read tabs. So um, it was who you lived near. Right. <laughs> now, that was who you could learn from. And thankfully, I had an amazing player that was within striking distance. Yeah, that really helps. I mean, I learned, I, I grew up at that time, I was in uh, Massachusetts, and I had, I had a good teacher. He was more of a folk banjo player but then mm-hmm. it was all uh books it was you know tony trishka books and things like that uh mm-hmm. which were great but it, i didn't have the access to to bluegrass musicians that you did so that yeah. really really helps develop i assume yeah i think it does and and too uh people assume because i grew up in south carolina everybody thinks that it, you're just inundated with players right. it really wasn't true you know, I drove an hour and a half to get to the banjo teacher, and it was basically an hour and a half either direction. I could go uh, to the southern part of the state around Anderson, Easley, South Carolina, or I could go up to the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And, um, you know, it really became kind of a, a dry, uh, just a barren era yeah. of in this in this area there for a while and I'm glad now because see then I left um, when I graduated from high school I moved to Nashville and stayed for a really long time and when I came back um, it was like starting over and I live now a little ways from where I grew up and there's actually a bluegrass scene here and uh, that that's so nice because it did it wasn't there when right. I was up. so it's been revitalized that's good to hear that kind of leads into the next question is a member of our team at Deering of the marketing team. Uh, you went to Belmont University, right? She, she went there too. So that's why it kind of, just, but, uh, so we wanted to have a shout out to, to the Bruins fans. <laughs> I wore the Deering shirt, but I should have worn the, the, the Belmont shirt. <laughs> Did you go to, to, to Belmont University for music industry? Uh, I went there for that, did not stay with that. Um, I went for um, music business, which uh-huh. if you aren't familiar, it's not a music degree at all. It's a business degree. You don't take any more music classes than, um, you know, a history major or whatever. So it, it's uh, really geared toward you take uh, publishing and copyright and um, marketing of the international product, things like that. Uh, just it's a it's a great program. But what I discovered, uh, you're forced to intern a lot in that yeah. program, which is great. And that's what really led me to understand that I had no interest in uh, <laughs> I 
quite at home and comfortable in a, in a deering type setting. Um, but in Nashville, especially in the 90s, it was really thriving and it was very much contemporary country music, which was not my cup of tea. And it was, it was a great time for the industry. Um, but I just, I don't know, I just felt like when I would be in those offices that I would have benefited just as much from being in an insurance office. It, it just didn't appeal to me um, to market the music of that time. I mean, right. it was great, cool, great, but it made me uh, think broader. So I ended up minoring in music business, but majoring in marketing. Mm-hmm. And, and and that just was a, it was always my backup plan. The goal was to never use the degree anyway. So I went to <laughs> You know, and uh, and had that to fall back on. But I can't say that that overview that you get going to school isn't really valuable because it is. Mm-hmm. And did you start playing with pro- you, your first kind of main professional touring band? Was that with Larry Stevenson that I hear? That's exactly right. And I'll never forget it because it was September 1st, 1995. And I missed the first day of my sophomore year at Belmont. I missed it to play in uh, Thomas Point Beach, uh, the festival in Brunswick. Right. Great festival. And I met Bill Emerson there, met a great friend that uh, is huge in the bluegrass community, Frank Journey. And then the very next night, we played in Long Creek, South Carolina. So it was a big introduction to real travel. And gosh, it was just so much fun. And, And just at that point, it just... I, I don't know if there's ever been a happier time of my life when I was just so young and and just uh, just in awe of of the banjo, you know, and then also getting to meet some of those people right. like Bill Emerson was huge for me. And then you know, as a result of getting the job with Larry, I met Sonny Osborne. Oh my gosh, you know. So I mean, I really really started getting acquainted. Eventually, JD Crow and. Uh, that surpassed my expectations right there just to get to be in a band and then to even get to to know the banjo players that meant so much to me like those three guys are huge mm-hmm. in my development. so it, it was an exciting time how did how did you think your your playing kind of developed during those years in you know as you first started touring and really playing a lot how did you know how did it change from when you're kind of just practicing a lot versus really being a professional and playing it all the time? Yeah, I know I, that's a great question. And uh, I've actually, I never thought about it at the time, but um, as I see Wayne and I both teach lessons all the time, and we've had the privilege of seeing some students who, um, who make the leap and start playing professionally. And it, it's actually been more uh, enlightening watching them do it than mm-hmm. th- on your own experience but I think a lot of uh, what it does for one thing you're, you're just going to play more right you're going to be it creates a lifestyle that allows for a lot of playing time mm-hmm. and that can't be overstated anyone at home who tries to play the banjo and they're juggling a million different things it's really hard to find time to do that and the best way to do it is is if your life is set up to do it you know, then then you're just going to get to play a lot more. And uh, we were playing at that point ninety or hundred shows a year, and uh, and then your the level of musicianship once you move to Nashville, 
it's just higher, you know, mm-hmm. so even if you have a great little pocket, now there are exceptions like right around Boston, there's this amazing, yeah, yeah. this amazing pool of, of musicians. Yeah. But in general, if you move to Nashville, your average player is just going to be a lot better. Uh-huh. So that is a, is a huge, um, you know, just it catapults you to a new level. And, and it, it's just a lot of fun to, go to a jam session and it, and it just blow your mind. I mean, that's a really mm-hmm. uh, thing. So getting to join bands and getting to know people and everybody you get to meet is a really good player. You know, it, it really helps. And then there are some things you can't simulate uh, unless you're on stage. And, you know, we play at that point, I played with records all the time, but that's different than being the only banjo. Mm-hmm. And, Learning how to deal with uh, all the uh, in peripheral issues that surround being a professional, bad sound, bad weather, bad crowd, drunk crowd, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you have all these things that you're learning to manage, but at the heart of it is, is playing. And then uh, creativity as far as... Uh, until you join a band and you start recording with them, you may not have had to create your own playing as much as you've copied other people. Mm-hmm. Now there's no copy. So uh, you have to come up with solos and backup, and you're, you're learning to manage a lot of dynamics in a band. So it just there's no replacement for it. The one bad thing that I've always said about joining a band is inevitably your focus shifts to being a good player for that band. So your, your learning outside of that group tends to slow down. And I've seen it so many times or stop where they get comfortable in that one situation. Definitely. They just rest on, you know, the, the comfort. Especially if you're working a lot where you don't, you start to kind of maybe practice a little less other than what you have to do to, you know, do yeah. the job. Yeah, that's right. And you, you also should hopefully, um, you know, some bands would be different, but you want to be seeking out material that's more challenging than whatever you're doing in a right. band. You right. want to be growing and, and learning. As I tell people all the time, there's a difference between being a good banjo player in a band and being a good banjo player. You can be situationally equipped but not really be a, a whole player. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is one of the negatives of joining a band is there's inevitably less time for actually uh, working. So you, you have to just be very intentional about not li- letting that slip away. And I did a really good job of that until we had our son. And that's when... Uh, Life starts to come in. Yeah. So how, what were some of the things you did to and keep inspiring yourself to keep kind of pushing yourself outside of what you just, you just have of what just is needed for, for the gig. Well, I mean, you know, I did, uh, I've done actually four, uh, solo records, banjo right. records, and, uh, that's always fun because it hopefully gives you a chance to, uh, to play and show something that they wouldn't normally hear in the band that you're in. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the idea of doing it is, uh, you know, I'm going to pick the vocal songs that are on it. I'm going to write the instrumentals that are on it. Uh, so, so that's always a stimulating project is to be thinking about 
maybe doing one of your own records. But that, mm-hmm. I don't do one often, but, you know, I have done that. And then for a long uh, part of my career, a huge part of what I did was fill in with people. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most valuable things I've ever done because it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you constantly learning new material, and you get better at it. You get good at just... You know, I always chart, and I have the arrangement. I've got my chart, and uh, banjo players have to kick almost everything off. So you have to know this. You can't just, you don't get the intro, the verse, and the chorus before you have to play. You probably have to play it, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. That, that keeps you going and learning with new things. And then the second you're in this new ensemble, you've got to feel the timing. You know, uh, I've got to lay back. You know, that's usually what always happens to me if I'm in a different setting. And it's not good timing or bad timing. It can be killer timing that's on the back end or on the front end. And, you know, you learn how to adapt in and out. So I think playing with a lot of different people, consuming a lot of different uh, material, I think all of that helps. And then in addition to that, I'm just a banjo fan. I'm not just a fan. I just like the banjo. You know, so if I hear something, uh, there are times that, it just strikes me down and I have to learn it. You know, right. I know what you mean. Yeah. And if you ever lose that, my problem now is I still hear all these things, but I don't, I can't seem to find the time, especially now that I'm teaching all day, every day, I can't find the time to commit to it. But in the younger days I could. So if I heard something that really inspired me, I figured it out. I learned it. So just instrument focused adaptability, playing a lot of different material with as many different people as possible. All of those things just kind of help you grow. Yeah. I mean, what you mentioned, you talked about, you mentioned timing in there and that, that's one thing listening to your playing, like the, the, the thing that really stands out for me is, is the clarity of your timing and your tone. Like it's just, it's just that the timing is just right there. It's just, oh, you know, rock solid and that's that's kind of to me one of the core things about bluegrass banjo playing you know if if i've strayed ahead bluegrass banjo playing i've gained that you know very specific very rock solid timing and and clear note separation mm-hmm. um how do you think you developed that so well is there any ticker because there's a lot of people watching and they're struggling with that they might be playing a lot but they still i know myself i still struggle with getting it just right you know sure so um you know i think one reason that that i emphasized that so much when i started was the players that i loved the most were great at that so Mm -hmm. i was filling my ears with very precise banjo playing and if you go back to the original um thing we talked about which was scott vessels playing Mm -hmm. um He's a machine. I mean, you have to keep in mind, too, that, I mean, I'm sure I had heard Earl Scruggs at some point, you know, my family playing records or whatever, but uh, Scott was the first banjo player I heard, and then that led to everyone else once I started playing the banjo. But I've never heard a better timing, clear, authoritative, precise uh, player in my life. So the very first guy that inspired me to play embodies all the things you just talked about Mm -hmm. 
in such a powerful way. And Scott's playing has changed. He he has um, his dynamics. He plays differently now than he did then, and we're supposed to all do that and evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, those Doyle Lawson days, he was a cannon, and he was flawless. And, the, and one thing he was able to do that um, I really feel like stands out. And when I when I talk about Scott's playing, I encourage especially young people to put it in context of the times. Whenever we're listening, we have to put it in, uh, realize when was this recorded? Uh, mm-hmm. What were the standards then? What was the technology then? And uh, he was playing pretty uh, outside, not necessarily with Doyle, but he was playing some fringe things, even oh, yeah. up on the Blue Ridge. Yeah. There's some single string. There's a melodic look here, here or there. And he played it with the same drive that you would play something straight. Right. And that's very appealing to me. Um, but, you know, I will say that uh, today there's definitely, I believe, a shift. And, and I feel like I can say this uh, with a, you know, a clean heart because I've heard enough other uh, banjo players talk about it that, there's this um, movement toward content, mm-hmm. and which is awesome. I mean, we, we all want to learn the funnest, coolest, latest, right. uh, hardest things. But it's like somewhere along the way, a lot of times people forget to listen to how they sound. You know, and, uh, and we can't do that. We have to constantly evaluate, okay, I made it. I didn't mess up. But how did I sound when I did that? And and I think tone and timing are um, essentials that are going to, no matter where your interest lies, the banjo is no longer a bluegrass instrument. You can take it in any direction. You can play in any type band with it. Uh, it's just all over the map, and I love that about it. But tone and timing are essentials to any of those paths. Uh, so I think a lot of people uh, could benefit by just, you know, maybe taking a roll and just, you know, that pinch. Like, are all those mm-hmm. notes, are, or do you have a weak one? Like, right. Right. Third, you know, we usually have weak, strong fingers. So just that pinch. Are they even? Is it clear? And then a pinch exercise. Where if you look at your thumb there... pretty busy thumb so it's a thumb exercise but it's also a pinch exercise to make sure that all these guys are the same volume do that for a while fast and it gets nice. hard to think and it's easy to the the misconception is that if it's simple it's easy and it's not the case at all it can be very simple but really hard to play well and then, you know, you just take uh, very simple rolls like. You know, and I can't tell you how many hours I would just stand in front of the mirror in my room and do that. You know, <laughs> yep. it, which is, you know is, is, uh, is the timing good? Am I accurate? Uh, equally spaced? And, um. Uh, you know, I said, tell, I make the joke, but I basically make my living with the Graskals doing this. I'm not exaggerating. You know, I mean, it's right. so much of 
bluegrass banjo, your default setting for backup is is this stuff. So it's right. not about, uh, in bluegrass banjo a lot of the times, it's not about what you play because a lot of us play a lot of the same things. It's uh-huh. more how well do you play it. Yeah. And it's an instrument of precision and execution. And content matters, but the assumption is that everybody's vocabulary uh, is going to be good. So we have to make sure the vocabulary is good. Mm-hmm. And once the vocabulary is good, we need to be sure that we execute it well. Mm-hmm. And did you use a lot of, did you practice with a metronome a lot, or was it mainly practicing along with records a lot? Yeah, you know, I I, I would love to say. I, love <laughs> I always had a feeling that you do, you're going to say this. Yeah. <laughs> when they say yeah I just did hours and hours and subdividing the beats and just went <laughs> I play eights and all this stuff. Yeah. I, really didn't. I, I played with I use it a lot teaching now but um, I mainly just play, played with records and I, right. I would gosh I would play three or four hours a day sometimes with uh, with my favorite records and then when we would get a chance to go to a jam session you know, I just enjoyed the heck out of that. And then if we were able to go to a festival, when it ended, I would try to find people to play. So um, I got as much uh, playing time in with other people as I could, but it was mainly playing with albums. I think that's the, the playing with other people part is uh, something we should touch on because I have a lot of students that it's hard to get them over the hump to start playing with other people. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could express what you think of how important that is. Yeah, it is. And Wayne and I have hosted a couple of Warnick Method uh, jam camps. Uh The whole idea behind that is just to make it, I think, uh, I hope anyway, that going to a jam camp just naturally uh, provides some some security. Mm -hmm. Right? And I, I think it's important. And thankfully, we've taught a lot we've taught enough kids teaching is its own skill it's a career path uh of its own and we've taught enough to get our bearings to help hopefully anybody that comes through the door so we felt really confident being able to help these these people and what we really wanted it to be was a safe place for them to try this Mm -hmm. and without exception they all went i can do this this is not so scary this is not so bad and I think one, um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to people. The first problem is access, especially these days. People aren't having jam sessions. But you have to find one. Mm-hmm. And then you have to um, be okay with whatever you're comfortable with. So I tell people for a while, if all you know is one roll, that's okay. Just roll. I teach them what the shapes of guitar chords look like. And I say, just sit in the back if it's a circle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, jam sessions tend to be uh, filled with decently nice people, we hope. And then, you know, I'll just say, you know, next time use uh, an alternating thumb roll half the time instead of a forward backward roll. Well, when you come to a jam camp, you get to do all those things very specifically. This time, banjo players, we're going to do this. Mandolin players, you're going to do this. And you just slowly build up the process over a weekend. And they leave excited about jamming rather than terrified of it. And I think that's the big, biggest obstacle is that people are just afraid 
um, to do it. And I just try to minimize expectations. The first uh, success is attending. If you go, that's step one. You, you did that. And I'll say, okay, and I do this with students. I'll say, okay, success this week with the jam session is that you go. And they'll go. Morning, take their banjo out. And I'll say, that's okay. That was good. Next, this week, we're going to take the banjo out. And you're going to sit way back. And you're just going to chop along or roll along. And uh, and if they want you to play anything, you say, no, I'm just going to sit here. And that's success. And then maybe the next time, I you know, if they have one really good lead, maybe I'll say, if they ask you, you don't have to, but maybe you play Cripple Creek or Banjo in the Hollow. And, and boy, if they get through that, they're so excited. And some of them we have to move slower. And then what they, they figure out is that jam sessions have common songs. It's kind of like bands. If it's a recurring group of people, there will be a recurring group of songs. So you can actually work on those songs during lessons, get a little bit prepared, and then go back and take part in that. And it's just a slow process that grows. And I think uh, another valuable thing, and the, the Wernick camps emphasize this, is uh, you don't have to do a lot. It doesn't have to be a fancy lead. It doesn't have to be up the neck. You know, we can do very basic skills that fulfill our obligation for whatever instrument we're playing at the time um, and, and be successful and create what we're supposed to do, which is just creating music together. And it does, you don't have to know very much at all to be able to contribute to that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Do you want to maybe play us a tune um, to kind of show us uh, some of the timing that we, that we were just talking about? So maybe like a straight tune? Play some yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe Fireball Mail or something sure. like that. Yeah. That's a good, uh, straight tune, a Scruggs tune. So most of these tunes, because you said you don't really read a lot of tab, you did this all by ear for the most part, right? I, I learned totally by ear. I will say I've yet to, to really present a, a good representation of anything that I ever try to do. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not on my A game tonight playing, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't learn by tab. And uh, 
I, I can write it really well. If I know how to play it, I can write it from teaching it. Uh, but I'm just so slow at reading tab that, um, and, I, and I hate it. I've gotten better at it, but there have been just a few occasions, not many, where I really needed to be able to read it because I didn't have time mm-hmm. to learn something and they just kind of hand you apart. And I got through it, but by the skin of my teeth where there's so many great banjo players that can truly just sight read tab. And that's a skill that I need to get better at. Um, but there are some dangers with tab too. So you have to be careful with it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as a teacher, I, I try to teach mostly by ear, you know, and use tab as a, um, as a, as a backstop if they're having trouble, you know, but, uh, cause I see so many students and myself included, even though I, 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 new music theory for a long time and could improvise, but it still locked me in certain things. Cause I looked at the banjo differently than I looked at a guitar just as a guitar, but the banjo was like these numbers. Yeah. That, Cause I always would play by tab, always learned everything by tab. And it, you see students, they're really having trouble breaking out of that, even if they can have good technique and can play. Um, all the time I see it. You know, I, I remember saying to one guy, uh, and he's been amazing. I, I'm so proud of so many of my students, but um, asked him what that was. I said, what is this? And he said, it's 1517. And I said, it is not. It is G. And it was brand new to him uh, because he had, and he is a super bright guy and he's got everything down pat now, but he had never made the connection that this is the F shape G plus 12, you know, and there's no reason he shouldn't have made that connection because he is uh, so thoughtful and and just a, a really good, well-rounded guy, uh, but he had just read tab so much and nobody ever told him. So you know, that was 15, 17 to him. And uh, I am very proud because I've, really never had a student that I could not wean off of tab. I have them who say there's going to be no way. And I do it so slowly that six months later, you know, I'll say, you realize we haven't used tab in a couple of months. And they'll, oh my gosh. And the, the best reward of that, I just had this happen with a guy in Nebraska uh, this week. He had learned uh, a rough, it was an approximation, but it, it was really good though of J.D. Crow's kickoff to crying holy of the Lord, if he was tab dependent, that wouldn't have happened. And and it's because once you break away from tab, you start identifying phrases, not as, it's just a different part of the brain, I think, because they don't, if, if you're wholly tab dependent, you don't hear the banjo and associate it with something you've played. But when you play it without tab, the phrase is the phrase. This, it's that. So then you hear that and you recognize it. And you think, oh, oh my goodness, I recognize everything in that solo. Maybe there's one thing you don't know, but you get around it. And it's very liberating. And that's what we want to do is liberate. Uh, but I certainly, especially if it's hard, you know, with melodic stuff, you know, is is it 
here, 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 you know, when you're playing melodically. There is definitely a good place for tab. And as I age, unfortunately, and my short-term memory starts to suck more and more, I'm realizing if I don't write an idea down, I'll forget it. And uh, I never used to forget anything. I mean, my memory was a really strong suit, and it isn't anymore. So if I don't record it or write it down, it's gone. Yeah, that's such as life, you know. <laughs> yeah. But luckily, we all have computers in our pockets all the time where we can always record things. Exactly right. So, so talking about, you mentioned your solo recordings uh, earlier. I was checking them out today, and then they're really blowing me away. Um, especially, like, I really like comparing, like, you, you, you mentioned you had four. I only heard three, unfortunately. Um, I was uh, so young. I was 19, and I put it out myself, and in fact, I didn't even have a copy of it, and someone who did gave it to me because they said, hey, look at this. They were going to, uh, I think I was going to sign it, and I said, this is amazing because I don't even have a copy of this, and so they gave it to me, which was really sweet. So that one's not in print anymore, so... Okay. I don't feel bad then, <laughs> but, but they all kick off with a banjo instrumental, all three all of these three that I, you know, I've heard and, uh, they're, you know, killer, all three of them are killer banjo instrumentals, but it's really, I found it interesting comparing those three instrumentals, listening to them back to back. And cause I think it was maybe 2002 was the first one Probably. and 2016 ish, I think was the most recent. So, you know, hearing the differences in your playing and the recording techniques were really interesting because it was kind of a same approach of kicking off the kicking off the, the album with with a big banjo instrumental with the hot tune, you know. Um, but like in, in the hunt, which was on the first one, that seemed to have your most sort of modern banjo style. It seemed like you're playing like a lot of single string licks and things like that. Where in the others, you're playing, uh, you know, more like this, the, the, um, don't tread on me. It's really straight ahead. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, um, on the great Waterton, it's, it's very straight ahead, but it's very, has modern little twists in it too. Like, yeah. uh, the, the yeah. harmony, the harmony changes on that one. And you use a little bit of melodic licks in there, but it was, um, where were you kind of when you're, when you made that the the hunt because it's kind of different than what you're known for uh, of your playing these yeah. days. Yeah, it's uh, let's see, that was O two. So, um, would I have been? I guess twenty four. Uh, no, twenty six, twenty five or six, probably twenty five when we did it. Um, so I I guess I was just um, I can't remember that tune. I, this one. Yeah. Yeah. Almost has an Irish sort of thing going on in it a little bit. Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, I don't know. As you know, you just write whatever is going on um, at the time is usually what leads you to uh, to write. Mm -hmm. I, you know, in no none of those cases did I think those songs would be first. You know, you just write uh, whatever songs you do for the record, and then. Um, I guess it just happened that way. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. There's uh, that first record was actually the one you're talking about uh, with the hunt 
was all instrumental. And none of the other two have been that way. They've been, uh, I think the next one had four vocals. The last one had six vocals. So um, we've made it more and more um, friendly to the masses by not doing all banjo tunes as, uh, as we've gone along. Uh, but I do remember um, Great Waterton I wrote because I needed a fast song. I had a, a, You definitely got the fast in there. It, it, it is burning. <laughs> but I knew I needed a barn burner. Yeah. And I didn't have one. And I hated to do something that, you know, was just a standard because, um, you know, it just feels like not a good use of time or whatever space. So I knew I needed to write a fast tune. And, uh, and that's the one that came up, I guess. But I, I didn't think that we would start the record with any of those. And Don't Tread on Me was just a, uh, I just played this riff in G. You know, I just played that riff in G and then we just sped it up and did it in B and of course it has a second part. Super simple song, you know, but if you listen, it's real easy for me to always think, well, it's not good enough song. Then you listen to some of your favorite banjo songs, and they are that simple. And I've also learned, no matter how inferior and substandard you think it is, once you put it with a band of great musicians, it's going to get so much better. So they will salvage. If you think that's not enough for a tune, you know, let those guys uh, influence it, and it will become a song. It will become a tune. Uh, but my favorite tunes are usually not the ones that uh, are are that fast. I think it's just that tendency when you want the first cut on a record to be uh, to grab people. Uh, speed has a way of doing that. So I, I did. I've never thought about that. That uh, that the three first songs were were kind of that way. It makes it makes sense though. You know that's but but, but yeah. you didn't plan it that way. <laughs> you know. But um, but those uh, like the Great Waterton, like that's just that's very fast, and it really shows again with the, that notes that clarity of your timing. But how do you think? How do you suggest people build up that speed? That's the common question we get: is how do I get to play faster? You know, and usually we always say, well, play slow, mm -hmm. and get it clean, and then the speed will come. But you do have to push yourself to get fast at one time eventually too. Yeah, you do. And I actually have a lot to say about this because um, when I joined the Graskels, I felt a lot of pressure. Playing fast is not uh, my favorite thing to do. I'm not very good at it really. And I don't like pr practicing it. So I don't ever get better at it. And uh, I think you're a little too humble on, on the not very good at it. <laughs> the Graskels and they played so fast thankfully I had filled in with Michael Cleveland they were they were the worst or the best however you want to put it uh, the, the best if you're listening the worst if you're trying to do it but um, I had filled in with him for a couple of months and uh, they played really fast and that was a great experience I got pushed hard playing uh, in his band Jesse Brock was there and Marshall Wilburn played bass and uh, that was a, a, you know, really good experience for me to, to because people think of me as a traditional player, uh, but it's all perspective. I, you know, I'm not 
traditional in the sense that uh, we would associate those guys as being necessarily. So it was really good for my traditional playing, and just the fire that they played with was contagious, and it it pushed me. Uh, so that was good. But right after filling in with uh, those guys, I joined the Rascals, and uh, they just would ignore my pickup notes. So if I kicked off something as fast as I could go at that given moment, and it wasn't as fast as they were used to, they just disregarded it and just put it where they wanted it to go. And then we rushed from there. So it's uh, it was awful. I mean, I struggled really, really bad for uh, maybe, and nerves were a part of it too, because uh, you know the the thing that gets me most about nerves is uh, high tempos. Yeah. Because if you can't play fast, and if you know you're going to have to play fast, you get nervous. So yeah. it's that cycle. Uh, so I was fighting nerves, and I was fighting those tempos. And uh, I talked to Sonny Osborne about it, and he gave me the best advice. He said, you can't play. All of the things you said are very true. We have to play slow. We have to play cleanly. And then we build it up. But beyond that, we can't play uh, the same solo we would play at 120, 30, 40 beats a minute. We can't play that solo at 180 beats a minute. And you're, you're making a huge mistake if you don't uh, alter what you're doing. And the way he described it is you sprint. Because, see, think about it, The only other skill in a bluegrass band that is as um, just hard endurance-wise is rhythm guitar playing. That is hard at those tempos. But you think about a mandolin, he chops, he sprints for a solo, he's out. Fiddles can longbow, you know, basses playing quarters. So they all have um, times to rest, except for us and a rhythm guitar player. So Sonny said you have to build in uh, planned rests. And he wasn't just saying, he didn't necessarily mean musical rests. He meant um, like a... a, a a blank spot and the yeah. just phrases that allow your arm and your brain and all of that to rest. So he said if you're if you're smart about it, you'll even make that a signature part of the song. It's so funny, I was talking about this to a great, amazing musician, uh, Adam Larrabee, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so for instance, and I did practice a lot at high tempos, but um we talked about, Sonny and I talked about that. So one of the solos, the song we played all the time, we played it first, and if we played the Opry and only did one song, it was this song. So it's the song that just was my bane when I first joined that band. And the solo I built for it was... dissect that this is all really easy it's all forward and you know you want to avoid uh rolls sometimes it happens but forward rolls are better because you get two rests for per finger so this one just plays you get two blank spaces before it's time to be used again so like this would be really bad those ones are harder if if you're playing real fast so if you look at this, it's pretty, and you do it the same way every time. That's another thing Sonny said. Don't 
uh, think you're going to change it. Don't think you're going to do something cool or creative. You memorize, you plan it, you craft it for speed. The, the whole goal of playing something at that tempo is to finish it. Okay, get through it. So you craft it with that in mind. You, you give away a lot of ideas, a lot of melody notes, a lot of cool roles. Oh, I could do this. You shed yourself of all of that. And you get what works, you know, so you're just real practical about it. So you end up with this, which is easy. Okay, that's all pretty easy to do fast. Then, that's pretty easy for fast too. Here's a rest. This is what he meant by rests. If you, even if you're not sounding behind, you can feel very behind. We've all had that experience, right? Where yeah, yeah. Maybe they can't tell, but I'm about to lose it. I'm on the edge of falling behind. This you can do at, you know, warp speed. So that's your rest. So if I made it to that part, I could recover and, and make up any lost ground right there. And then when you go, this is easy. Now you want to finish big. So here's your big sprint. Now that's a real lick. But you've saved up. You've planned to have enough, you know, stamina to get through that lick. And if you're not doing well in that that particular day, because it's a very up and down thing. And I'm talking tempos around 180. Um if you're not feeling good that day, then maybe you end it this way. And you just downgrade it. So I think the, the biggest mistake people make is they try to play a solo they play at 130 beats a minute at 108 beats a minute. It can't be the same solo. Uh, so if you look at Great Waterton, uh, it's much the same way. fast is the point and it's designed that way because we knew that one was going to be really fast so uh, that's easy it's all sliding in the right way and it's greasy it's messy so it's it doesn't have to be as perfect that's pretty easy to do no matter how fast it is so you know you have to be cognizant of it now that's one realm of playing fast but when you're talking about, you know, I want to get uh, Gold Rush up to a playing speed, that's different. That's a different uh, journey because you're, you're, then all the things you said, that's really all we can say to folks is if there's a problem area that constantly makes you stumble, I weed that out. I never, I say all the time, try a phrase until it's no longer awkward. If it's still awkward after you've given it a good shot, we, we replace it. So make sure there are no problem areas 
and then use an app like Strum Machine, which uh, gradually speeds up. You can set it to at 80 to 100, and it just gets a little faster every time. Things like that are great tools. It's way better than playing with a metronome because you get the feel of a whole band, but it keeps you accountable. And then when it's just like a bodybuilder. You know, you think, well, if you can lift, I mean, I'm a girl. So, like, if I can bench 100 pounds, surely I can bench, you know, 105, 110, you know. Five. No, there's a line that we can't cross. You know, so we all have those lines and in just the same way you struggle to, you know, sometimes it's like that. Um, but I also tell people, gosh, don't let it steal your joy because it can drive you crazy. Any of these things can get, you can get fixated and then you just lose your joy and you don't want to do that. Yeah, that's very important. But those, those tips are, are fantastic. That was really great um, uh, explanation. Both. Yeah. I mean, how can't it be great? Yeah, I mean, that's me. <laughs> I know we have a lot of um, comments in the chat, some questions in the chat. Jamie, do we want, are you there and you want to? Um... I am. I am. How are we doing? This is, that was amazing. I'm, I'm looking at the chat and everyone's super excited, Kristen. So thank you uh, for everything. And like the, the explanation just now was, was really, really cool. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, let's jump into a couple of questions um, and then I'll lead into a couple of others. Uh, where are they going? Here we go. All right. The first one would be, um, you're, you're a pretty damn awesome Scruggs player. Um, how do you feel about integrating uh, melodic licks into your playing style? Oh, I, I love it. Um, I'm not a good melodic player. I'm not, uh, it doesn't, not intuitive to me at all. There's something about playing a higher note on a lower string that just doesn't work for my brain. You know? uh, but I love melodic playing, and you can do so many things uh, just to spice up even a Scruggs break. You know, more a Scruggs tune. Like uh, I just recorded ground speed, and I've taught a bunch of variations to that. You know, and I think one of the solos can, of course, ground speed. By by the way, it sounds like this. So one of the variations was something like Scruggs tune where I just did Scruggs melodic, Scruggs melodic. That's not exactly what Scruggs played, but you could do what he did. And then play a melodic phrase. Back to Scruggs. I learned this from Scott Vessel. So there's bouncing back and forth um, between Scruggs and Melodic, and then you can always just put a Melodic phrase at the end, you know, if you're playing um, just something a little like that, say you were playing um, Love's Like a Flower. 
see. Ah, what would be a good one? There we go, so we get good. throw stuff in at the end. There, there's so many we could do. That would work. Something like that. So I'm a fan of doing it, uh, you know, in just in doses. What I find if I say I'm going to play Whiskey Before Breakfast, I just have to play it the same way every time. play a scrubs break different but it's and that could vary endlessly but my melodic break is going to be set in stone just because i'm not not good at it you take a player like uh mike munford and i'm just in awe of him because he is as fluid melodically as most of the rest of us are with scrubs and uh, he's just got a gift for that style of playing and uh, it's not that I don't like it. Um, it's just that I'm very bound to whatever I figure out. So, uh, you know, I, I'll work up a melodic break or form a melodic lick, and then it's probably going to stay that way. Awesome. That's really awesome. That's that's really good advice. Um, I have a couple of questions here as well that are similar, so I'll ask both of them. Uh, one is from our, our good friend Maisa, who's often on here asking questions and keen to learn. Uh, she's down in Brazil. Um, and she asks, what's your favorite style of music on the banjo? Um, and then another um, uh, person in the chat has asked, you call you, do you call yourself strictly a bluegrass banjo player or do you like to play you know, various styles of music incorporating the banjo into it? And if so, kind of what's your approach for something that isn't typically uh, a bluegrass, straight ahead bluegrass style? So what was the first one again from Brazil? Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite style of music to play on the banjo? Well, to play, I mean, obviously, um, I've just lived in the bluegrass world uh, for so long, but that's a very big tent these days. So, you know, we could talk a little bit about uh, what I've done is not even necessarily my favorite thing. Uh, it's It's just where you find yourself, but... My favorite uh, situations to play the banjo in would still very much be under the, the bluegrass umbrella, but, um, you know, I love playing kind of uh, singer-songwriter, folky, Americana-feeling type bluegrass. So, for instance, I love uh, Claire Lynch's music, and, uh, and I think that's kind of reflected in my solo records. If you listen to the... Um, vocal songs that I pick a lot of times uh, there'll be it'll be a little bit um, less straight ahead but still very much within that that world of bluegrass so that's my favorite uh, way to play the banjo like I really like um, there's a tune on one of my records called imagine that uh, I liked what the banjo was able to contribute to that and uh, fall in New England which is a Cheryl Wheeler song 
that I did uh, bluegrass style, but it, it just has a nice lilt to it. It's got a laid back uh, feel. And, uh, you know, those, I think that's really where my heart is at. I, I enjoy uh, that type of bluegrass and what the banjo can do for that. I also really, really, really love playing slow songs on banjos. One of my favorite things. And a lot of people just don't care about it. They don't, to listen or to play it. Uh, but I love to play slow songs and uh, just slow, pretty stuff. So that, that would answer the first question, I think. But if... Um, and the second question is, am I mainly a Scruggs player, I guess? Uh, yeah, definitely uh, I consider myself a Scruggs player. It's all about perspective. You know, if you put me alongside a diehard Ralph Stanley player, I'm going to sound pretty contemporary. You know, but you put me at Bela Flex Banjo Camp with Noam and uh, Noam Pekelny and Tony Trishka and uh, folks like that, and, and then suddenly I, I am Ralph Stanley. <laughs> you know, so it's all about where you're standing, who's around you. Uh, but I write some some um, not exactly traditional bluegrass tunes, and, uh, you know, it, like, again, it goes back to my love for the banjo. So it, it's uh, what I do in bands tends to be extremely straight ahead, but what I do on my own is, is a little bit more varied and tends to err on the softer side of bluegrass. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I like what you said about um, the, you, you love talking, you know, playing slow songs on the banjo because I think uh, it's not what it's known for. Yeah. You know, when people think banjo, it's, it's 100 miles an hour. Do you find it any, 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 a bit of a challenge trying to do that? And it, like you're trying to tame the beast and maybe it opens you up to a few more of your nuances in your, in your picking style that you want to try and you'll otherwise be able to cover up if you're playing quicker. Yeah, you know, I don't find it as challenging because I like it so much. You know, it's like give me four takes on a slow tune like that and, and they'll all be drastically different because I, I have so many ideas on that um, sort of thing. The, the battle comes from letting, uh, from other people letting you play on it because the, the assumption is that, oh, this is a slow song. It doesn't need banjo. It's not going to offer, it's not going to make it better. Uh, and it does definitely change the tone of a song. Uh, so, for instance, I'm recording this weekend for some folks, and there are a couple of slow songs that I really would love to be a part of, but when I show up, I'll find, I'll find, I, then I'll know if they're going to let Banjo be a part or not. So I think the bigger battle is not playing them. It's convincing other people that it's okay and that it can, it can be of value. That's very cool. That's very cool. All right. One of my favorite questions I think we've ever had uh, was on here. I think it's amazing. Howdy, I am 68 and I just got my first Deering Artisan open back. Now what? And how is the best way to practice? And I think that just speaks volumes to the fact that it's never too late, first of all, uh, to pick up a banjo and start learning. But, um, you know, I think I think Deering does a really good job of, of promoting uh, uh, online lessons, well, online lessons, online teachers, but also our own collection of of, of uh, tips and tricks. But how would you advise somebody like this? Is, his name is Skip. How would you advise Skip on on where to really get started, uh, particularly at, at the age of sixty eight or beyond? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, welcome, Skip. You know, I mean, welcome to the world. It's a kinship, and uh, I think you'll enjoy the world of banjo. But uh, you know, there are resources available. I mean a shameless plug i wrote a book for hal leonard called your first 15 banjo lessons and it comes with video and audio and it um it really does 
you know, get you started. There are many resources like that, but I, I solely, you know, obviously I'm a banjo teacher, but I really believe finding a good teacher is essential, particularly with anything, but particularly with banjo, because there are so many things that can go wrong at first. Pick direction, posture, you can learn a roll that's three, two, five, one. The first thing we all learn, but maybe you did this. You know, you just switch those two things instead of three, two, five, one. You played one, you played three, one, five, two. That's going to haunt you forever. I think people have to remember that bluegrass banjo playing is incredibly repetitive. So if you have one flaw in your playing or in your vocabulary, consider it like the word the. What if every time we needed to say the word the, we said, you know, barn instead? It would just be jolting and it would happen every other sentence. Banjo playing is like that. So if you have one flaw, it's going to continually show up, usually many times in the same song. So I, I love the idea of people finding teachers who can prevent problems before they start. And in the age of online learning, uh, it's so much easier. I didn't, you don't have to drive an hour and a half to the banjo teacher that I found. You know, you can log on with uh, me and a hundred other people who, and you also want to be, it's a good teacher, you know, and that's another thing that technology has done. You're not limited to just who can play a banjo around you. You can get some really established folks to, to help you learn. And I would say, a lot of people say, oh, well, I'll just get started on my own and then I'll take lessons. And I think it should be reversed. You need to start with lessons. And then if you break away, um, do that later on. But that, that foundation really needs to be strong. That's perfect. I'm seeing a lot of people say, yeah, I'm in the same boat. Like that's perfect advice. That's just what I needed to hear. So that's, that's really cool. And you're absolutely spot on the online and dare I say, like the situation that we find ourselves in during the pandemic and the lockdown has has really kind of accelerated that that thing, right? People can't travel an hour and a half or even travel 20 minutes to be an in-person uh, yeah. lesson. Like most of it has to be online. And so it's, it's forcing everybody to make it a better experience overall. Um, just curious, where can people, if, if you, are you taking students right now? Pimp yourself out a little bit and how, yeah. how can people find you? right now but the waiting list folks still get lessons because if I have a cancellation for my regular folks I don't know the waiting list and, uh, and so you can slide in that way and then there are some days that for whatever reason I'll have three hours and I'll say hey it's five to eight Thursday night or whatever and um, and so it opens up to them and then the waiting list folks also get to if there's a one-off like they say they're in a band and they email and they say i know i don't have a regular slot but we got to play the song and i don't know what to do on it you know i'll log on with those folks so i have my regular roster that i depend on um, and that's pretty pretty set in stone but if those guys cancel or if i book additional time or if someone needs a lesson then I can do that. And that's what the wait list does. Obviously, if someone drops out, then also I open that uh, slot up to the wait list. So people may be discouraged, like, well, gosh, you know, there's so many people ahead of me. It's not really how it works for me. That makes perfect sense. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, I've got one more question from the chat, and then I want to lead in with a, with a 
couple more of our regularly scheduled things. How are you doing for time? Are you okay? Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Um, one of our. I need to look uh, out for him though. I mean, as you can uh, see, our dog is just so <laughs> stressed out. I mean, he's he really needs my attention right now. He's clearly. <laughs> with all the banjo playing, right? Introduce the the dog to to the audience. What's his name? Morning. Yeah, that's Fisher. He's Fisher. my. He should he should know more banjo than well. He should know at least as much banjo as I do because he sits in on all the lessons. And uh, he's uh, I. In fact, I have a Deering uh, smile bridge on one of my banjos. And I have this greatest picture. It's a perfect picture of the, the bridge, the Deering Bridge. And he's asleep on the banjo head. But see, I'm asleep and the Deering Smile banjo is right there. It's kind of cool. Please, please send that to us. I would love to see that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, we have another fellow teacher online uh, talking to us as well, Sherry McCowan. She is asking, um, do you have any tips for teaching left-handed players? I haven't had that experience. Uh, so it would... I mean, am I thinking that the fist rings on the bottom? Is that what we mean? Or um, I don't know. I, she didn't mention. It. I'm assuming that it's it's a left-handed player, and it's just the, the maybe the challenge of of mirroring, yeah, uh, what she's trying to to teach um, yeah. in a way that can be replicated on their end. If they just held the, I mean, I've seen people do that where they just have a right-handed banjo going and I would have no idea where to start with that. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm struck. <laughs> That's okay. All right. One question that I, I really want to know about, because I did read in your bio that um, you have played for not one, but two of mm -hmm. the presidents of the United States. I think Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Is that correct? Was sort of. We played for functions they were at. <laughs> in fact, Same. when we played for uh, 43, he was... Um, we were playing, it was actually at the, the Commerce Department, and it was a going away or a thank you party because he was going out of office uh, for the interns who are all young people. Who, I mean, they just put their lives on hold. It was a great experience, obviously. So we were playing playing there, and uh, when he arrived, we stopped. <laughs> so, you know, but it was great. Earlier that day, uh, you know, I was out on the... Uh, South Lawn and got to see uh, Marine One land and um, we got to shake his hand and prior to that we were able to see the Oval Office because he wasn't there. You get a much better tour if he's not in the building. Uh, so that was really fun and then we played for an inaugural ball which there are many. There are way more inaugural balls uh, than the ones uh, that uh, the presidents attend for Barack Obama. And uh, we had to go into D.C. It was really weird for uh, security. We had to get in two or three days early, but I loved it. I was running a lot at the time, and I just ran around that amazing city. And uh, the, it was so crowded when they were actually inaugurating him. Um, I couldn't get in, onto the mall. I couldn't. They had everything blocked off. There were so many people I couldn't even get, uh, you know, get in view to see it. So I, I could hear it, but... Uh, so we played uh, for one of the balls that night uh, that celebrated uh, his presidency, but he was not there. He didn't even, yeah. at least Bush. Oh, and then we played Fort Campbell one time, and Bush was there, and he probably had to hear us a few minutes at that one. So, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool, though. That, I mean, banjo players in the, in the White House, I think that's, that's 
we'll take that win any day, right? That's very cool. Now, uh, I did mention um, earlier on, we've been talking a lot about teaching. Um, so it kind of feels fitting that we should at least touch on, uh, you are the, the face of our Teachers Love Good Time campaign. You, know, you don't play daring every day. You're playing your old Gibson there, which is, it sounds beautiful. Lots of compliments on that. But you, you wanted to kind of work with us a little bit on, you know, you, you recommend the Good Time Banjos to uh, beginner players in particular. Yeah, I do. Well, I recommend them for a lot of different reasons. So that's a 1930. What I've been playing is a 1930 83. Um, a lot of people have heard that it's a 33 <laughs> because it's a 1933. But no, it's a, a, the year 1930. The model is a three. And it's kind of like a mate. You know, I, I uh, bought this in August. We got married in April. So I've, I've been with Wayne slightly longer than the banjo. But, you know, I consider them uh, equal in the relationship there. But here's my good time. And um, I love these banjos. I'm telling you, they're just the coolest banjos. Now, this one I have uh, tuned down to, uh, I think I'm an F. Yeah, I'm in F right now. So, so let me tell you why I like these banjos, and I've uh, <laughs> recommended them only hundreds of times. Um, but I've played a lot of different ones, and they're all reliable. I've never played one that was not um, highly playable, and that's huge. When you're starting to play an instrument, playability, to me, is way more important than sound. I've t taken you know, banjos from beginner players and thought, well, I can't play this. Nobody can play this. It's not playable. That never happens with the Deer and Good Time. They're consistent. I've played a ton and they're all the same. So that means your strings aren't going to be too high. It's going to note in tune. You know, we've all been teaching a lesson and they go to do this and, or, and you think, oh, is that the right, is that the right fret? And it's because the intonation is so bad that you can't even tell if they're in the right fret. So uh, easy to play, they sound good, they're consistent, and they're affordable. And so for a banjo, a beginner banjo player, I think it's the only way to go. But there are other reasons to have it. And uh, one, it's very convenient if you want to mess around with other tunings. For instance, you have a really good banjo that you're in love with, and um, you play it all the time, but you don't want to tune it down to open F, say, which is where I'm at now. Wait. Oops. Almost. Okay, so it's great for alternate tunings. It's also just fun for me because I got the open back, and it's light. Oh, heaven help us. It's light. And, like, if I, I've taught lessons in the car line to pick up my son at school, you know, and... I don't want to carry these. I don't want to carry this 1930, you know, you know, and they're heavy and they're in real cases. And it's like, man, I can grab this and go teach lessons in the car if I need to. If I'm flying and I don't want to have to worry about it. I just really feel like it doesn't matter how many banjo players you have. You can stand to have one of these and you'll be glad you have it. Because there's so much you can do with it. Um, and you'll see all my tape. That's a note identification. Uh, can you see that? That's uh, one of my note identification tools that I help 
uh, folks with uh, to learn the, the notes on the banjo. So I, I took the time to tape some of that up. Probably wouldn't have done that on that one. You know what I mean? So it's just a lot of freedom. And That's cool. Yeah, the, the tuning thing's a big one. Yeah, we have a lot of guys who who are having purely just to put different sets of strings on and just mess around with different ideas. But, I mean, camping. You know, so many people take them camping and just travel with them to have something. We uh, we had Ashley Campbell on um, two weeks ago, I think. And she was in Croatia at the time. And she, she plays a bunch of our banjos, but she took her good time Americana because she could just take it on a plane, stick it yeah. in the overhead, and no problem, you know. Yeah, it's just a, it's a way to eliminate the stress. Um, so I, I, I just don't think there's any banjo player that couldn't benefit from something it offers, you know, from the very highest end banjo owner to a very beginner. It's just got, there's a lot of good things about it. And the, I'm telling you, the reliability is key because uh, the consistency, I should say, the consistency is key because I've played a lot of beginner banjos that were good, but then I've played their the same ones and they might be bad. So you it is so individual that you can't say for sure it's a good bet. So if someone asks you, tell them what to buy. It's always that question mark. And they're not going to know because they haven't played yet. I, these all are the same. <laughs> and that's really a, a nice uh, asset for some peace of mind. Yeah, that that is you know anyone who knows us knows that's kind of where we put the emphasis. We want we want to produce something that is on the good timeline in particular that that is going to help the beginner, especially not hinder their progress by by basically putting all of the money into quality components and and playability and tone. Right, we can make it look as pretty or glossy or shiny and gold plated as we want to. Um, you know, if we went to uh, international factories and stuff we don't want to do that so the, the good time really is uh it's everything it should be right it's doing the job and trying to help students yeah it keeps it affordable and also mm. another thing that Deering has done very well um is and i've seen a void in this market forever we had 200 dollar banjos we had four or five thousand dollar banjos and not a whole lot in between and there have been some other builders who are moving into that but I've told students many times that Deering has a stepping stone of, of models available. And I just have an enormous number of students who play Sierras, uh, which for the bang for your buck, I, I think it's about as good as you can get. And uh, they sent, some of them sound just amazing. You know, I mean, they all sound good. And then there are some that are like, wow, it's hard to believe that a, an instrument that costs that can sound that good. And then if you want to go beyond that, you can. I mean, there, there really is something for everybody where, you know, for a long time with Gibson, the entry-level banjo was, you know, going to be more than anybody can even consider spending. Uh, so I think it's good for you guys. It's smart because the developed brand loyalty was something like a good time. And then they're really just exponentially more likely to stick with the daring when they move up. And you've offered the right increments of growth. Yeah, that's that's amazing. We we appreciate hearing that and sharing that with our audience. That's uh, that's really cool. Um, I'm glad to see you've got the, the the colors on there for the for the note recognition. That's cool. Um, all right, so we're getting kind of close, wrapping up to a close a little bit. Um, but I got one more question, and then maybe maybe one or two from the from the chat. Okay. In 2018, you won the Steve Martin Banjo Prize. That was a good day. 
that was a good day. Talk, talk us through it. Wait, if you can, move, move the camera back. There we go. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Talk, um, talk us through that. How did that come about? And, and what was that like, um, particularly like, because there's, there's a bit more fanfare involved in, in that particular award. You're going on Letterman and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah. I didn't do that. That had that had died away by the time I got it. I don't know. Maybe the guy. Uh, I can't remember the order or anything, but maybe the one or two before me were not able to do Letterman. Um, that was actually a relief to me because I would get so stressed. If I played Letterman with the Grascals, I'd be fine. But if it had any kind of, uh, oh, that would stress me out. But anyway. Uh, it was a great thing. It was so unexpected. Everybody says that, but it was really unexpected. And this is the part. This, just the story, is worth the award. But um, I was at Bale Fleck's house because that sentence, okay? I mean, I'm, that's, that's enough of a prize. But I was at his house, and uh, he said he wanted to talk about some stuff for his Blue Ridge Banjo Camp. I had just taught there. It was the first year, the inaugural year. And I uh, wanted to go over some camp stuff. And I'd also uh, just recorded a banjo trio with uh, Bela, Allison Brown, and myself for a Daily Vincent Christmas special. So we had done that the night before. And he said, come over in the morning, we'll talk some banjo camp. So I was there, and uh, he went upstairs for a second. He came back down, and it was Allison Brown and uh, her husband, Gary West, and uh, Bela's wife, Abby, came down, and uh, Noam Pakelny all walked down and uh you know so immediately i you know but it still didn't think that but allison didn't make me wait long she she said kristen we're here to let you know that you're the new winner for the steve martin award so it's unbelievable i you know and and uh, so unexpected and and just a huge blessing to our family and one of the coolest things that's you know ever happened and again going back to that association like getting to meet bill emerson uh, getting a Christmas card from Bill Emerson, you know, things that the players who were so essential to you when you were learning, to get to know those people is just a dream come true. So just being in a room with that group of people is such a gift. Uh, and then Steve Martin's gift was even better than that, you know, so it was a great day. Certainly sounds like a fun day to me. That that sounds great. Well, congratulations. It was 2018, but congratulations. I know they uh, they just announced the 2020 winners as well, which is um, really cool. Some amazing talent in there. All right. Yeah. Couple of a uh, couple more questions then, and then we'll let you go because I know it's uh, we're. I mean, it's got to be what 7:30 over there now. So thank you so much for your time and and hanging with us for a little bit. Um, some suggestions on building scales uh, and licks and any exercises. Um, I think for, this is Maisa again from Brazil and, and she's a bit more experienced, I think. So she's trying to get to that next level. Um, yeah. Any uh, tips? Just because that's tuned in F, um, maybe let me grab this one, but uh, you know, I'm working on this. I'm actually taking lessons from Adam Larrabee. Uh, so I'm a student still and, and trying to, to learn more and uh, grow my theory knowledge especially but without uh, I mean I have all these tricks that I use to help people um, you know I, I call it very blue-collar theory the practicality of it just has to be through the roof before I teach it and I have to really understand it before I teach it because I don't want to get in over my head which would be easy to do but uh, the number one scale that I believe in teaching is the G
E major chord scale. And so we would go. Then we start pinching one, two, and three using the fingers we would use if uh, we needed all of them. So the ring's gonna fly free. And back down, okay? And then we start rolling with it. Well, we have three major chord shapes on the banjo, so we're gonna learn it in each inversion. Fancy word for shape is how the intervals are stacked. So the D shape inversion would be. back down and we would also pinch that. Then we have the bar shape inversion. I cheat on that one, it should be, but I go half diminished and then we pinch it. Okay, I can't overstate the usefulness of that because um, it's just as a primarily a bluegrass banjo player, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of single string. Single string actually comes real natural to me. Unlike melodic, you know, I, single string has never been a challenge. I mean, it can be if it's really hard, but uh, that works for me. So the, the uh, single string uh, scales, I think, are pretty, pretty easy for me to get, but the... The, the problem I have when they're single string is integrating them into bluegrass without it sounding, and there are guys who do this beautifully, but uh, and still making it sound appropriate. Like I could force some ideas, say, in the band that I play in with the Grascals, but it would sound forced. So the chord scale is beautiful because it's still based on rolls. You, we can use this knowledge and still roll. And, you know, the chord scale itself is beautiful. You turn into like... You know, it's beautiful in itself, you know, and there's all these exercises we can do. Well, then here's the payoff. Um, you know, if you're anytime you're moving from a one to a four chord, which is every song we play, now we don't just do this, we have an in-between. Works in reverse. And then say we're in the five. You can walk it five, four, three, two, one. Five, four, three, two, one. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, we can go up five, six, seven, one. So you get good at this chord scale and suddenly you have all of these uh, passing chords that link the very basic uh, chord changes that are in all of our songs. So it gives an enormous amount of variety. It works for slow songs, fast songs, lead, backup, three-quarter, four-four. You know, I teach people the chord scale. After they get the raw information, we can spend months on implementing it and then revisit it a year later and it's brand new stuff. It just never goes away. So by far, that's my favorite uh, scale concept to teach. Fascinating. It's fascinating. I, I think that's amazing advice. I think you've covered some really great um, ground for beginners and maybe for some more uh, intermediates as well, which is fantastic. And the fact that you're still taking lessons as well. How many hours a day do you practice? That was one of the questions uh, that we got. Problem because I do teach so much right now. See, we always talk, but it was an add-on to band. 
And then the pandemic hit, and we were so incredibly blessed that we had a teaching base, but we greatly grew it, uh, you know, frantically. <laughs> we we tried to grow it just as fast as we could. And so my days, uh, I mean, it's very much like a day job. Uh, the banjo's in my hand all the time, but I'm, I'm doing this. I'm not actually learning what I need to learn. So what happens for me is, you know, I log on with Adam, and he gives me Seriously, like some of these concepts would take a year to get through, you know, and I just started transcribing uh, our first lesson. I'm not I'm not joking. It was like three or four weeks ago and I'm in 10 minutes in. I mean, so uh, it's very slow going uh, for me. The banjo's in my hand all the time, but it's not really considered practice. And, you know, I have things coming up like I played on a few records lately and I've got one this weekend I'm playing on. Uh, I've got demos, and I'd like to spend some time on that, and I will, but it's not the same as, you know, fixing coffee and sitting down with your banjo like, you know, I'm about to do this. It's fixing coffee to sit down to log on with someone else, which is great. I'm so thankful. I love my students. People say that. They're, they make our life better. I mean, they become friends, and they're part of our social uh, structure and we love them and so we're incredibly thankful but it's greatly teaching so much has greatly robbed me of any time to practice on my own love it and the fact that coffee's included in whatever you're doing makes me makes me happy so we appreciate that um one more because my i assume you know ernie welch as well yeah hey, hey ernie what's going on so oh. he's bugging me I don't love that student. He's a nuisance. <laughs> he is a nuisance, but we love him anyway, right? That's the way it goes. <laughs> but he, he's in the chat, and now he's emailing me saying, you got to ask her this question. So, only I promised I would. So, he says, ask her about root note rest. Ah, root note rest. Yes. So, the biggest mystery, the number one question I get from people when they start taking lessons from me, and they have been playing already, is how do I play backup? Uh, it's number one. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One, it's harder to hear. If someone's singing and it's on a record and it's mixed down, it's just harder to hear. And then what you de do hear and back up is you'll hear um, their fills. So in other words, you may not hear this. But then you'll hear that, okay? So what I, what I find when I say, well, let's see what you would do for backup on a basic song. They either play the solo quieter, which is good. I'm glad they played it quieter. Or they string together licks. And that's very, both of those approaches are logical. Um, and my biggest obstacle when I teach backup is convincing people that this is all it is. And banjo blue backup has changed through the years. It's evolved and it's actually be, just gotten more and more narrow uh, you listen to Scruggs and uh, J.D. Crow and Sonny Osborne. They had all this cool stuff that I am really, really into back up. And I, I do feel pigeonholed because modern bluegrass really wants, in fact, the ironically, the thing I talked about, the Scott Vestal momentum that attracted me to the banjo. That's all they want ever. So they don't even want you to do this. <laughs> anyway sometimes because I can't stand not to but banjo uh, backup playing has been really condensed and uh, I just created this little formula is this all we do no it's not all we do but if you play the root note and then a rest that's section one 
And then you play a group of chord rolls that start and end on the fifth string. And then this is what Earl did that no one had done well. Uh, maybe some people were playing backward rolls, but they, they sounded awkward because it's a math problem. If you play nothing but forward rolls, you're playing in groups of three and four, four time. So it's going to sound weird. See, it didn't sound logical. So he started putting reversals into his playing. Well, that was great because now it sounds like you should change chords when you change chords. So for instance, if we were going to play Blue Ridge Cabin Home, it's the one I start everyone on, um, we're going to play a root note rest in G. We're going to play a group of chord rolls. Now we're going to reverse, one, two, three, one. Now we're going to C and we do the same thing, except now our root, nest, root note is on the second. this reversal, we're going to lift the ring and play one, three, four, one. So that's that reversal. Now we're going to go to D and play the root note and the rest. Same way you lifted the ring in C, we add the ring in D. Reversal one, three, four, one. Back to G. But this G links to another G, so watch the reversal. Reversal is going to be one, three, four, one, like all of the ones except the first one. So that is a formula that we can apply to backup, and it sounds like this. And it just repeats. That super solid backup. That is fulfilling our obligation as a banjo player. And the, what I tell people, you know, think about a rhythm guitar player who's great. If he was playing all these runs and, and doing all this crazy stuff, it would be distracting. And it really is that monotonous. Now, that doesn't mean we can't go up the neck. not the whole song for that you know so I just have this little formula that I teach in it and it just what it does is it gives you a system it, it gives you something to think about when you say well how do you play backup my original approach was I'll give them backup for two or three tunes they'll see that it's all the same and then they'll know how to do it and it never works so that's why I got that little you know strategy going and, and it's helped a lot of people that's fantastic. What a way to end up. That's really cool. You are now officially the longest during live that we've done. And and honestly, you have been a joy. Thank you so, so much for your time. So much great advice. Uh, the, the, I'm running two different chat rooms right now, and everyone's just so, so thankful for all the tips and advice. And, and uh, even somebody said they waited for, on your waiting list for two years. Oh, and wow. it, was, it was well worth the wait, they said. <laughs> I said that. Uh, I'd have to find it. Hang on. Ah, uh, uh, isn't so many. I can't find it. I will find it in just a second. Um, yeah, we'll let you know. But I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and 
everyone's just very receptive. So, so thank you so much. Um, all right. Well, David Bandrowski, I know you're there. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts for the day? I mean, th thanks so much, Kristen. This, this was this was a blast. Uh, I know I learned a lot, and it was a blast digging into your work too. And uh, yeah, I could I could I could talk with you for hours on end about about this stuff. But uh, we'll let you go. <laughs> Thank you for having me, and like I said, uh, it's my favorite thing to talk about. You know, so I love the problem is finding other people who want to talk about it and listen to it. So thank you for providing that opportunity. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll do a part two because I feel like there's a lot of unfinished conversation. I'm game yeah. for that. Let me All know. right. That'll be cool. Where can people find you online? Where can people find your music? Uh, pitch yourself out a little bit. and. Uh, yeah, they, they can find me on Facebook. Um, also, uh, it shows how in touch with my website I am, but they can email me through my website, which is psbbanjo.com. KSB, Kristen Scott Benson, ksbbanjo.com, and just click contact, and they can get in touch with me that way, or find me on Facebook. So uh, I'm not I'm not really great at the social media stuff. I, I'm not geared that way anymore, but I but I am there, so you can get in touch that way. I think all your albums are on Spotify as well because I had them playing yeah. most of the week. So uh, go check them out, everybody. Would you mind closing us out with just a little tune? Yeah, sure. sure. That'd be rad. Thank yeah. you so much, Kristen. Thanks, everybody, yeah, for joining thank us. You. We'll be back next Thursday. Same time, same place. Yeah, so let's do something like this. Maybe a little bit.